David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. In his famous work on Christian doctrine, St. Augustine of Hippo summarizes man's existence with this quote. Every man... Whatsoever his condition desires to be happy, there is no man who does not desire this. And each one desires it with such earnestness that he prefers it to all other things. Whoever, in fact, desires other things, desires them for this end and for this end alone. Whoever, in fact, desires any other thing, desires it for this end And for this end alone. And that is why everywhere you look, there are promises of happiness. Every product that is advertised on television promises happiness. In fact, I think in every movie you watch, every sitcom, there is a a subtle message that is implying if you have this, you will be happy. If you live like this, satisfaction will be yours. In every billboard, in every flyer, in every song, there's a suggestion that it's in this true satisfaction can be found. In fact, thinking of even this time of year, that seems to be kind of the message of the season, right? It's one of the excitements of the holidays. Christmas offers happiness. In that you get to enjoy all these great traditions. Even the opening of presents, there's an excitement, right? To to get something new. Even New Year's offers hope that despite whatever's happened in the year past, there will be a, a renewal. You can start again in this new year. We just celebrated Thanksgiving. There's the offer of just a great meal and time together as a family. There's a... There's an allure of happiness 
We're always seeking happiness, as Augustine said. Some people, they seek happiness in success in their jobs. Others are convinced that it's in satisfying their, their body's cravings that satisfaction will be found. Others are persuaded that it's by increasing their wealth, or maybe it's just a, a bigger home, or a nicer car, or some, some other stuff will provide the joy that they long for in their heart. And certainly that's true. New stuff, time with family, going out with your friends, all those things will and do provide happiness. But as we all know, happiness in these things is superficial at best. It lasts for a moment, maybe a day, a weekend. So how do we go from this superficial experience of happiness and really move towards finding that unchanging, permanent happiness? Well, I think it comes from moving away from those temporal and fleeting things to finding happiness in that which, was, which is unfleeting, which is permanent, going from the temporal again to the eternal. And that's really what David is arguing for here in Psalm 32. He's not just telling us to go to the source of our happiness. I mean, probably most of you here would say, of course, yes, God, he's, he's the eternal one. He's the source of my happiness. So I need to find happiness in God. Well, yes, that's true. David goes also one step further. Not only is it in, in being restored to your relationship with God where happiness is found. But he also deals with the source of your unhappiness, which is that which has separated you from God. And that's sin. The psalm here of David is him teaching us where true happiness begins. And it begins, that is that true lasting happiness, it begins in being restored to a harmonious relationship with God. And just like a diamond uh, shines all the more beautifully when it's laid on a, a black velvet setting, that's, that's kind of what this psalm is like. When you understand the context of where David wrote this psalm, what was going on in David's life, the meaning and the depth and the richness of the psalm becomes all the more clear. Because David wrote this psalm right after he had fallen into an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And after that act, it didn't just stop there. In order to cover up his sin of having impregnated her, he had her husband, one of his best warriors, murdered, essentially. And over the next year, David lived with a guilty conscience, a deep agony in his spirit. He became emotionally distraught, and as he states here, he, he became physically ill over the guilt. And this continued until finally Nathan, the prophet, confronted David and pointed out the fact that he knew of David's sin. And finally, David acknowledged 
his guilt. And this psalm is really the summary of David's experience in these events. In the superscript, it says it's a maskil of David. A maskil essentially means it's a teaching psalm. So David here is not just simply writing a song of thanksgiving or of praise. The purpose of this psalm is actually to instruct us. It's to teach us something. David wants us to learn a deep and valuable lesson. And that, I hope, should hit home to you guys. He's writing this right after probably the most, the grievous thing he'd ever done in his life. This scarred him and his family permanently. And so he sits down to try and communicate an important lesson that he wants all of us to learn from his experience. It's meant to be an exhortation to God's people to repent from the sin that binds them so that they can enjoy the multitude of blessings that come from finally being restored to God. And there's a real simple outline to the psalm. It's there in your uh, bulletins on the back. The first part in verses 1 through 5 is David explaining the joy that he has had in being restored. And the second part is all the blessings that come from that restoration as well. And I recognize that right now some of you might not emotionally be able to uh, connect with what David's talking about. But each of us has sinned grievously in our lives. There are sins, I am sure, in each of your life that maybe only one, maybe nobody else has ever known and that weigh over you and confront you frequently. It would not surprise me in the least if there is somebody who has done something so awful they have never let anybody know about. In fact, I, it was just a, a number of years ago in a counseling session, two of my close friends uh, confessed that they had had an abortion while they were still unbelievers. And they had never let anybody know. And their family, uh, any close friends. And that, the burden of guilt had really crushed their relationship because they didn't know how to talk about it. They didn't know how to get past it. It was, it was like a weight upon their heart, and it was crushing. It was crushing them, and um, we even. I got, yeah, there's so many other stories. I think of other friends that I've had that have had this this weight of sin, and it wasn't until they finally felt that they were in a safe place so they could talk about it. They they were able to make progress, and it would. A great burden, I think, that I have in my heart is that there may be somebody even here that has a sin that they've done, and that sin has, uh, is blocking them from fully enjoying the grace and forgiveness that they have in Christ. And I have no doubt that some of you have sinned in grievous ways. And because of such decisions, the prospect of happiness maybe has never seemed truly attainable. 
the idea of, yes, I can go out with my friends, have a good time, but then after that's done, you go back to your home. When it's quiet, as you lay on your bed, you stare at your ceiling, and the memory of what you did, it could have been 15 years ago, pounds upon you. Because you can't forget what you've done. And there's no taking it back. David wants you to hear this message. Again, my goal here is just to explain what David is saying. But David wants you to know what he found. And I will do my best to make his lesson clear. He begins in verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In these first two verses, David demonstrates the incredible joy. I tried to find just the right words. Incredible still seems insufficient. He, in fact, that's the point. He can't, he can't express how much joy he has found in comparison to what he had felt over the past years. He tried to hide his, his guilt and his sin. And his, he has one point to make here in this first verse, but he states it. In four different ways, just to make the emphasis. Notice, he talks about his transgressions are forgiven. Sin is covered. There's no iniquity. And in his spirit, there is no deceit. The point of saying it four different ways is, it's a way of emphasizing how great his joy is. And the last phrase is a little different, but it's ultimately making the same point. See, after sinning, David turned that deception, turned to deception in order to hide his sin. He had to pretend as if he had no, not done what he had done. But now that he's been, recogni- he's been reconciled with God, that burden no longer waits upon him. He no longer has to deceive others about who he truly is and about what he's done. He's rejoicing with this refreshing this new joy that he's found in being forgiven and restored to God. And just like the woman in it's Luke 15, who found, you know, Jesus t- sharing this, this parable, who, who found this coin. And after she found this coin, she went and told all of her friends about this great coin that she had lost that has now been found. Or even in the same series when the, the father was restored to his prodigal son. He went and he threw this party because he, that son that was once lost had now been found. Similarly, David wants you to know the joy that he had found in once being lost and now being restored to his father. He wants to share it. He's compelled to teach others and you in particular. He speaks of the blessedness of forgiveness. The blessedness. Now, it sounds like a very churchy word, right? Blessedness. Speak about blessings. But it's an important word to understand because I think it's really a key to this, this psalm. Blessedness is ultimately what every man is seeking in his heart. And that's why I started with the quote from Augustine. It's that happiness. Augustine used the word happiness, or at least in that translation. Every man in his heart 
is seeking that satisfaction, that joy that will last. The joy, the peace that will bring them completeness. And in the original language, it actually means it's plural. So it literally means many blessings or many happinesses will be upon the one whose sins are forgiven. And ironically, it's the very thing that sin promises it can give you. Whether it's through a song or through a movie, through a billboard. The very thing that makes sin so alluring to us is its promise to make us happy. What's ironic about that is the very thing that it promises is actually what it prevents. And that's what David is trying to communicate. Every sin you commit is the result of trusting a lie. A lie that you can be happy, you can be content if you yield to this sin. Think about some of these lies that you might have listened to. Lie about how you're really doing spiritually. You'll be happier if you're the only one that knows that you're miserable. Fudge some of that information on your application. You need this job. Your family needs you to get this job. It's okay to look at that picture just for a second. After all, you're an adult. You're totally justified in your angry words. Show them that you deserve respect. People need to be aware of that other person's weaknesses in order for them to truly appreciate your strengths. See, in all those lies, there's an allure of some sort of happiness, some sort of contentment being found if you just follow it. But sin has never paid the wages it promises. It promises happiness and satisfaction, but we know that the wages of sin is death. That's what sin gives you. It gives you literal physical death. Or it just kills you while you live. Now this doesn't mean that sin doesn't tickle our senses or provide a fleeting illusion of happiness. Of course it does. But that that tintillating satisfaction flies away quickly and it just leaves this gut-wrenching misery which was what David's experience was here as he describes in the pains of his separation in verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. What David means by when I kept silent is that he just ignored the fact that he had made this transgression. He just pretended as if this sin hadn't really occurred. He went on with his life, pretending as if his relationship to God hadn't been affected at all. He acted the same. He used his time the same way he probably always did. He even went through the same ceremonials of worship. In fact, he probably led in those ceremonies of worship. If he lived today, he would have gone to church, read his Bible, and prayed every day. He would have sung the worship songs. 
See, nothing outwardly changed in David's life, but inwardly he was in agony. And his agony was brought about by a refusal to acknowledge the sin that he had committed. See, David knew what he had done. David also knew that God knew what he had done. So why did he keep silent? See, as long as David didn't have to acknowledge his sin, his pride didn't have to accept the reality that he'd failed. His pride didn't have to accept the reality that he had blown it. Yeah, David, the great David. Great David, the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, stole another man's wife and then killed the other man. See, as long as David pretended, he didn't have to acknowledge what he had done. He could keep silent and live under the deceitful guise that he was the great guy everybody thought he was. He wouldn't have to be a disappointment to others. After all, he was the leader of Israel. How could a leader fail? The leader of God's people. He probably reasoned that if people knew he had failed... Maybe that would give them excuse to fail too. Well, if David, great David can fail, well, then I can too. And maybe he didn't want to give them that license to sin. And this is how sin works, right? It first begins by enticing our desires, lying to us, calling us to seek happiness outside of God. And after we have been hooked and reeled in, it's at that point our pride kicks in and tells us, Oh, what you did really wasn't all that bad. You don't have to acknowledge that you blew it. And that's why after we sin, our natural response is to hide it. Hide it from ourselves. To some extent, try to hide it from God. Which makes no sense, but we do. To hide it from other people. We just become deceitful. Or we blame shift, blaming other people for our sin. Or we make some excuse about it, act like it really wasn't that bad. But what David wants to say to us is the absolute worst thing you can do after sinning, no matter what that sin is, is to keep silent about it. It's the worst thing you can do. To not acknowledge that you are the one that is at fault. In fact, that, that's why in our home, Julie and I make it, we, we stress for our boys that when they sin, they are not, we don't, we, we encourage them, we don't want you to say, I'm sorry. Although we're fine if they are sorry. We're training them to say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? When they wrong one another, when they wrong us. I was wrong. Because it's so important for us to acknowledge when we've done something wrong or we can't be. That's the, because the problem is the sin. If you don't think you've done wrong, you can't be restored. That's, you have to acknowledge that. You have to acknowledge wrong has been done. 
in order to find that restoration. And then, of course, that, that person has the opportunity to forgive you at that point. Simply saying, I'm sorry, all it does is acknowledge you feel disappointment. David felt disappointment for what he had done for almost a year. And it wasn't until he acknowledged his sin, he, in essence, said, I was wrong. Did he find the forgiveness and the joy that he had longed for? Acknowledging wrong is critical in order for true reconciliation to be accomplished. And notice how David describes the consequences for failing to acknowledge wrongdoing. In verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. See, as David hid his sin, he felt this ever-increasing toil upon him. He felt actually as if his bones had withered away inside of him. Felt like a blob. His grief had, that had been brought about by the separation between him and God had withered his emotional frame. And you've got to understand who this was. This was Israel's mightiest warrior. Remember how the women used to sing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. This great warrior, this leader of worship, was just a blob because of his sin. He had become a lump of goo. Not only did he feel broken and amoebic, but he felt lifeless as well. He says in verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as the heat of summer. The Hebrew word that he uses for strength here essentially means life essence. He felt as if his life had been drained away, something like a leaf in the hot sun. Just kind of, it's, it, the greenness dries away and it just crumbles. That's how David felt. He felt like a dead leaf. And his desire to go on living was gone. Like a forlorn castaway adrift on a tropical ocean, David was spiritually parched and hopeless. Like salt water, sin had promised him that it would be refreshing and it would quench his thirst. And yet it left him more dehydrated and exponentially more thirsty. So how did David escape? How did he get from this lifelessness, this depression that had weighed upon him? What feats did he have to perform? What penance was necessary for David to do in order to finally be made right with God? What did he need to do for God to accept him? He says in verse 5, confession. He simply had to acknowledge that he had done wrong. And that is the path to restoration. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Notice the three words used here for sin parallel the same ones that he used in verses 1 and 2. David held nothing back. This is his point. He confessed it all to God. The motives behind the sin and the sins 
themselves. Probably every step that he took in that process and over that year or so of hiding his sin, he confessed it. He just poured out his heart to God. That weight that he had carried, he rolled on to the Lord. And this is seen in the word acknowledged. In fact, that word acknowledged literally means to know. He made a full disclosure. He left nothing hidden. See, recognizing that confession of sin is not merely admitting that our sin is real. Confession is not simply admitting that our sin is real. Confession is rejecting our sin as repulsive. See, a lot of people acknowledge, oh yeah, that was wrong. But that is not what it means to know, to acknowledge your sin. It's not just to admit wrongdoing. It's to acknowledge that that wrongdoing was gross. It was disgusting. It was wrong. See, there's great deceit in the person who acknowledges that he sinned. But he feels no repulsion over that sin in his heart. So true confession involves really two things. Admitting that we have sinned. And secondly, rejecting our sin as repulsive. And so when David confesses, he's acknowledging that he's sick of the poison of sin. He's sick of the poison of sin that had withered him away and he wants a full purification. He wants a full cleansing. He wants to be made new. And you recognize what all that David had to own up to. The lust, all the deception and the lies, the adultery and even murder. And don't pass that by too quickly. And I say that because we're so familiar in the church with the story of David that maybe it might just be too familiar. David killed a man to hide his sin. And he had to confess that. Even just consider how hard it is for you to make confession for such smaller sins. What that must have meant for David to finally confess that. But... Because it was such a burden when it was released. There was such joy. When David finally admitted his wrongdoing, God forgave him for all that he confessed. All of those horrendous deeds. For every evil deed that David was honest about, God forgave him. David just needed to confess. And as his repentance was full, his joy was full in the forgiveness that he received. He goes on from here to explain the multitude of joys that came from trusting God and confessing his sin. Beginning in verse 6, he says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you in a time when you could be found. Surely in a rush of great waters they won't reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. He says, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you in in a time where it may be found. In other words, what he's saying, if you're locked in sin, run. Run. 
Run from that very thing that is holding you in bondage. Recognize that God has not cast you off. He hasn't cast you off. He hasn't hardened his heart against you. In fact, there is nothing that God wants more than for you to be restored back to him. Remember, that's the point of the prodigal son. The father in in that story, the prodigal son, ran to his son as he returned. There is nothing that God wants more than for you to cast your burdens upon him and entrust yourself to him again. He's waiting for you. He's waiting for you, and, and that's what he says, in a time where he can be found. Right now. Right now is a time God can be found. That forgiveness that you need can be found. And so David says, run to him. And if you do, surely in a rush of great waters, they won't come near you. See, as David describes here, even if a whole tidal wave were to come against you, God would not let one H2O molecule touch your skin. Because He rules all earth and all creation, and He's not going to let one thing befall His children that is not for their good. He says in these precious words, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. See, especially after sin, it may seem like the whole world is against you and that you're all alone. In fact, isn't that what sin does? Especially when you're led to deceive others about it, you feel alone. In fact, I think so much of the loneliness that, our, that, that people experience, particularly in the United States today, it's because there's unconfessed sin in their life and they don't know what to do with it. So even when the whole world might seem against you, God promises to preserve you from trouble. And you can have confidence that in the most daunting of circumstances, God's going to protect you. He says He will guard us and surround us with songs of deliverance. Which means our our assurance, our, our preservation is definite the songs of deliverance essentially it's like this the songs that people that armies would sing after a battle after a great victory or that uh people who had been rescued who'd been taken captive after they'd been rescued in their joy they would sing songs of deliverance and it says god is singing these songs surrounding us that salvation is ours reminding us salvation is here I am here. Run to me. So even after he's rescued us, God doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves, even in our battle against sin. He's there. He protects us. So that's the first blessing of being restored to God. Secondly, we have God's guidance. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. This is interesting. He says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. It seems best to take this as the words of God. Some, Some translations actually make that a little more explicit. So he's saying, God will counsel us with his eye upon us. 
We have his revealed will clearly displayed for us in his word. But moreover, he says he, he promises to counsel us and will graciously lead us like a shepherd through all of life if we will just stay near him. See, there's going to be times in your life when things just seem to be falling apart. Nothing seems to be going right. In fact, it may be that every step that you take is just painful. Either because you've just gone through some excruciating loss, or there's just some fearful event that's out there in front of you in the future, or maybe it's, again, because of unconfessed sin. Yet we can be confident that if we're not ignoring His Word... That this is a place that God has shepherded us into. And He will lead us like a shepherd out of it as He sees fit. And it's especially at those times of blank uncertainty in our life. Or in painful trial. Or at a period in our life where our desires are left unmet. That we need to have the full assurance of His promise to care for us. Because it's when... uh, we're at a place of uncertainty or when life is unpleasant for one reason or another, it's at that point that our self-preservation instincts kick in and try to veer us off the path. We quickly panic when we're taken out of our comfort zones. We don't sense the merciful hand of God upon us and we begin to question God's goodness. We begin to question if His will is really what is best. It's like our instincts are yelling at us. They're screaming at us. Save yourself. God is not going to do anything to help you. Or our desires and lusts say to us, God is keeping you from that which is best for you. Act now or you're going to miss out on this opportunity. And that is why the Lord instructs us in verse 9 to not be like a horse or a mule without understanding. See, when we begin to doubt His truth, even though He's never lied to us before, when we begin to doubt His truth, we begin to act the part of a scared or stubborn beast. And this is the picture that comes to my mind. Imagine a mule that has run away from home and whose master has gone out late in the evening to find him. He's discovered by the master as the sun is beginning to set along the horizon. And as the master leads him back home along the narrow path, the light begins to quickly fade. Shortly, the air becomes cooler and more crisp. Silence descends around them. And after a while, they hear a howl in the distance. And in a few more minutes, they're surrounded by the howling of wolves. And the mule begins to panic. Every instinct within it says, run And forsake the care of your master because he has led you into danger. Trust in your own strength and speed to carry you away. Your master cannot handle these wolves. But if the mule at this point were to run off the path that the master had prepared, we know he would become easy prey for the predators that are trying to lure him off the path. 
and he'd be quickly devoured. Or consider a different scene. Maybe it's afternoon this time and the sun is warmly sifting through the tree line and there's light shining gloriously on the path ahead of the master and his mule. And as the master leads the mule along, the mule begins to wonder to itself if the master really has his best interests in mind. He asks himself, where is he leading me? And why can't I have those shiny red apples off to the side of the robe? They're just a bit off the path. They look so sweet. And they won't be any trouble to reach. After all, what harm is a little sweetness along the journey? He does not consider the reason that the master is leading him away from the fruit is because he knows that some of that fruit is poisonous and others are just not ripe yet enough to be edible. And so they would make the poor mule sick. And so he leads him on, not because he wants to keep them from their sweetness and pleasure, but because he knows that although they might taste sweet for the moment, they would rot his innards in the end. Moreover, the master knows that there are far sweeter, far healthier apples up ahead on the path. Of course he knows. He planted the apples. He made the path. There are two things which would lead us off the path of righteousness. Fear and enticement. You don't trust your instincts and go bucking off into danger or else you'll need to be harnessed and drugged through life, kicking and screaming. And God does not want to bridle you, but He wants to lead you with His eye upon you. He wants you to enjoy the freedom of trusting Him. However, if it means keeping you from danger because you're too easily deceived, He will discipline you in His love. God is leading us through life, and although there are many dangers, toils, and snares that we've already come through, we often doubt that grace truly will lead us home. The path of life is not always plush and green. The valleys of peace that the Lord will lead us through in our pilgrimage are actually pretty few and far between. The road is a perilous one. And the valleys of the shadow of death seem to be more prevalent than the latter. And yet it's important for us to know as believers in Christ that the path of the wicked is an eternally dark one. And the fruit that they eat is always rotten in the end. And they're being constantly devoured by the wolves of sin and they will continue to be into eternity. And notice... Finally, verses 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. See, David tasted the fruit of sin. And David tasted the agony that came as a result of giving into it. 
But at the same time, as David repented and let his trust rest upon the Lord, he was finally able to enjoy again the sweet pleasure and presence of God's love. Which I, I think leads us to ask the question, why is forgiveness such a blessing? Why is it that this is what David says is the source of all of his happiness? How blessed, how many happinesses are for the one who has found forgiveness? It's because forgiveness restores us to God. The fount of all happiness. The fount of all satisfaction. It restores us to Him and His steadfast love that never ceases. See, we have to remember that God created us for Him. Our, our whole makeup, all our desires. I mean, you know, as, as Calvin said, our hearts are desire factories. I mean, our idol factories. It's because they're full of desires, longings. Well, those longings unfortunately happen to be corrupted often, but the longing itself, the thirsting, the hungering, it's, it's for something greater. The longing for satisfaction that we talked about with St. Augustine. Augustine's point in that quote is, we have been created to, be fi- to find satisfaction in God. And so all the hungerings and thirstings that we find here, these temporal things in this life, they were never meant to satisfy, and they can't. And so when one is restored to God, the fount of all pleasure is opened up to them. That's why forgiveness is so rich. But when sin hinders that relationship, our satisfaction is cut off. And we're separated from Him. And the only way for God to reach the goal of glorifying His name, which is what He wants, and what He wants us to find satisfaction in doing, and to make His people happy, the only way for God to achieve His goal of exalting Himself and satisfying our hearts is not just to overlook sins, because He can't. It's to forgive sinners, to change them. And this happens when we confess our sins to the Lord and seek reconciliation from Him. And of course, this is why Jesus came to earth. What we celebrate in the Advent season is the Advent of our Lord coming to earth. That's why Jesus came, so that we could be restored to the fount of all satisfaction. He came to bear our sins on the cross, taking the penalty of God's wrath for us. And now when we confess our sins we can be fully reconciled to God and enjoy the forgiveness that's offered to us. And so in summary, happiness is found in being reconciled to God and walking in His will. What keeps us from that happiness is sin. Sin allures us, it deceives us, it says, find satisfaction in this and it doesn't work. And so, although sin leads to fear and deception in our life, the sinner who is led to confess is also led to restoration and the fount of all happiness. Some final observations. 
So the blessedness that David speaks of here, or happiness, or satisfaction, or joy, the blessedness that comes with having your sins forgiven does not mean ease. See, just because David experienced tremendous blessing of forgiveness did not mean that his life was easy from that point on. In fact, if you know the story of David well, it got horribly worse. The child he conceived with Bathsheba died. Later on, his son raped his daughter. And that son, Amnon, was then killed by another one of his sons, Absalom. And that son, Absalom, rebelled against his father, took over his kingdom and his concubines, and was eventually killed as well. Reconciliation with God does not mean that your life's going to be easy and pleasant the rest of your life. But it gives strength and hope for us to endure those trials. As David says, when you've been reconciled to God in a flood of great waters, they won't come near you. He is our hiding place. He surrounds us with songs of deliverance. Reconciliation with God gives us hope to endure in the midst of the darkness that's still ahead. Secondly, the same principles that apply in getting us reconciliation with God apply also in our reconciliation with one another. Just as we sin against God, and ultimately all of our sin against God, all of is against God, we also sin against one another. And the way for us to have reconciliation with one another is the same way. We have to confess our sins. That's why James says at the end of his book, confess your sins to one another so that you could be healed. See, just like David, our tendency again is to hide, to deceive those whom we've hurt. And this throws up walls in our relationship. And it could just be even emotional walls, walls of fear or walls of anger or hurt. And when this happens, intimacy or fellowship is, is impossible. And that's why marriages fall apart often because of unconfessed sin. Because intimacy is almost impossible when those walls are thrown up in the relationship. So we need to acknowledge our sin if we're going to enjoy the benefits of a healthy relationship. And thirdly, consider again what David's trying to communicate here with regard to happiness. And ask yourself, are you happy? And I don't mean just superficial, tra-la-la happiness. I mean, are you satisfied? Are Are you joyful? Are you enjoying life? Even if things are hard, is there a, is there a, a rock of contentment and satisfaction in your future knowing that you're God's. I mean, would you, can you, does your heart resonate with what David talks about here in the psalm of the, the blessings of forgiveness? Do you, are, you, are, you, are you saying, yes, oh, it's so good to be forgiven, to have this burden of sin gone, and to feel the presence of God, and to know His preserving hand? If not, you need to ask, ask the question, why? I think most importantly, 
You have to ask the question, if, are, are you really saved? And I don't throw that just I don't just throw that out because I'm a preacher. The worst thing that could happen in life is to, is to stand before the Lord on the judgment day as he says in Matthew 7. Jesus says, "Many will come to me on that day and they'll say to me, "Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons? Did we not do all these such and such?" And Jesus will look at them and he'll say, "Get away from me. I never knew you." The worst thing that could happen for a person in life is to think they're going to get a well-done, good and faithful servant and, and they get to cast him into outer darkness. Have you made a full disclosure of your sin? Have you truly confessed it, made it known to God, and also recognized how repugnant it is? Are you sick not only of the shame that comes with it? Are you sick of it? Does sin disgust you? Do you want to be done with it? Or are you craving it still? If not, I'd implore you, do so now. As David says, in a time when you may be found. Because brothers and sisters, there's a time when he won't be found. And we don't know when that is. None of us knows when our time's up. And right now is a time when God can be found. That that restoration is possible if you want it. If you want true satisfaction... But if you want, if you want the, the lies and the agony that sin produces, though you know it doesn't, you know, you know sin doesn't satisfy. I don't need to tell you this. You know it. Don't be deceived if this is you. You know it doesn't satisfy. It does. I implore you as David implores you, Hear this word from a man who knew the agony of sin. Seek the Lord in a time where He may be found. Or maybe you are saved, but confession, just simple confession needs to take place. That's what's keeping you from the joy of your relationship with the Lord. Or maybe there is just some other idol that's interfering. There's something that you're seeking delight in instead of God. And that thing just needs to be put in its place. Anyhow, the the source is the same. Confess your sins to the Lord. He wants, it's so important for you to understand, God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be satisfied. He wants you to have joy. That's why He created you. And so whether you're a believer and you're stuck in some sort of rut or be Christ, the message that David would want you to have is the same. Seek the Lord in a time where you may be found so that you can have the immense blessings of forgiveness and enjoy the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. Let's pray together. Lord, You search us You know us. You see our every 
deed you see, the motives of our heart. You know all that we've done. You know what we're going through right now. You know us, God. Lord, help my brothers and sisters here to experience the joy that you have prepared before them. In this life even, help them to know the blessings that come with forgiveness and restoration. And Lord, I pray that even as we continue in our worship service, that that you would bring to mind the immense delights and joys that come in being restored to you. And again, I'm, I'm reminded of what we had sung in the last song. Thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son and sending your Spirit till your work on earth is done. And may the joy that comes from Christ compel us to spread the message of the joy of restoration unto all the world, that all the world might know the blessings of forgiveness and sing with us on that last day the songs of deliverance that will fill our hearts and fill our lips. And it's to that great day that we hope. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.